This is the 11th hour lecture series, your Thursday installment. Uh, and I'm really excited for this one. I think dialogue can be really great. Uh, and it can also be really tedious. So I love that Kelly is going to share some tips with us today. Before we get started, just a few, just one housekeeping item. If you could please turn off your cell phones, silence your cell phones, double check your cell phones. That would be fantastic. And without further ado, we'll get going. So today we have Kelly Dwyer, who is a graduate of the University of Iowa Writers Workshop and the author of two novels, The Tracks of Angels and Self-Portrait with Ghosts, as well as two children's books. Her monologues and short plays have been produced in Madison, Boston, and New York. Today, Kelly will present Better Talkie Talkie, The Art and Craft of Strong Dialogue, in which she'll examine the features of strong and weak dialogue and provide tips you can apply to your own writing. Please join me in welcoming Kelly Dwyer. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for um, coming. I have um, an important announcement before we get started. Um, because of the number of participants, uh, the dinner tonight has been changed from the river room to the second floor ballroom at the Iowa House. And there will be signs um, showing us the way. Um, but just so you know, um, we'll be in the second floor ballroom instead of the river room tonight. And the doors open at 6 p.m. It's a buffet and a cash bar. And you should get there at 6 if you, um, uh, if you like. But I think the buffet actually starts at 6.15. So that's at the second floor. Um, thanks for joining me to talk about dialogue. Um, dialogue is uh, important because I've heard that it's what agents and editors look for. Um, they will read the synopsis or the first line or the first paragraph and then they flip to the dialogue because if we can't write dialogue well, they don't have time to teach us. So um, if you're not writing good dialogue, your chances of getting that editor or that agent um, end there. Um, if the dialogue is strong, they might go back and keep reading. I think it's what readers look for. Um, if you're like me, you um, might also flip to make sure there's some dialogue and it's not just Moby Dick, exposition, blah, 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 but there are some scenes and people talking and of course it helps create a powerful work. It's difficult to think of a great story or novel or memoir without dialogue. And of course, it's pretty much all we have if we're writing um, screenplays or plays. Even in poetry, some well-placed dialogue can create meaning and power. When we say show, don't tell, um, we're often talking about creating scenes, dramatizing, and using dialogue. What's so hard about it? Well, um, we can feel that if we're writing realistic dialogue, it can be boring or even meaningless. Um, dude, you got to see this YouTube clip. 
Not now, I'm killing zombies. Are you hungry? Should we order pizza? It's realistic, but if we went on for another line or two, we'd lose our reader to boredom. But if we give our characters something resonant to say, will you do me the honor of bearing your soul to me? It's resonant, but nobody talks like that. So we'll lose our reader because the dialogue is too stiff and too unrealistic. So we need to make our dialogue natural, but resonant, and that's not always easy to accomplish. There are ways to improve our dialogue. Listen, it's called a good ear for dialogue, not a good mouth. So we need to listen to how all kinds of people speak. I think if you ask most readers um, about the characters in Edith Warden, they would tell you, um, they, they would think about upper crust New Yorkers. But in Custom of the Country, to take one example, I'm struck by how many different kinds of characters and different voices there are in that book. There's a working class masseuse manicurist who has the inside scoop. She talks a certain way, very matter of fact, with very colorful expressions. Undine is a protagonist, and her parents are newly rich, but they're not nouveau riche like Undine. They don't have any pretensions. They speak like farmers from Apex, Missouri, which they are. And Undine, who is a social climber, talks differently than they do. Her husband, Ralph Marble, who's from one of the oldest, most wealthy families in New York, is very bookish and staid, and he talks differently than his friend does, who's also old money, but in a more frat boy Yaley way. Um, so it's important to listen to how all kinds of people speak and to try to capture those differences in our writing. Quentin Tarantino, I was kind of excited about going to jail for the first time, and I learned some great dialogue. So we should make use of every opportunity to learn and listen to dialogue. Uh, read your dialogue aloud. It surprises me how many good writers skip this step. Sometimes I'm working with a writer and I'll ask them to read their scene aloud. Immediately they start speaking in contractions that aren't on the page. You should fix those issues before another reader ever reads them. Um, but connected to this, have someone else read your dialogue aloud for you. This is especially important if you're a playwright or a screenwriter. Um, before I send my plays out, I'll have actors read my plays aloud to me. Um, I'm not looking at the page, I'm listening to their voices. And if I've written, I am ready to go, that's how I want my reader to read it. And I can hear that, and then um, depending on the character, I might want to rewrite, I'm ready. I also notice when the actors stumble, and I never say to myself, oh, it's just because they're reading it for the first time. I always think, what mouthful have I given them? And I'll just note it on the page, and we'll talk about it. No good dialogue and bad in your reading or viewing. What makes it good or bad? Noticing it in others' work is a good habit to get into. Um, so these are some tips I have for getting better at writing dialogue in a general way. Before we get on, go on to um, the point of dialogue and what makes good dialogue good, I wonder if there's any tips that other people have to improve their dialogue.
Anyone? Okay. Sorry? Oh, is that legal? <laughs> okay. <laughs> she said tape record people who are talking. Um, I guess if you just use it for your own benefit, that's okay, right? <laughs> um, I usually just take notes, but that's probably a good idea. Um, I want to discuss um, what is the point of dialogue and what makes good dialogue good. What's its purpose? Before we can really discuss what makes it good, we need to define what it does, and yet, it's hard to discuss its purpose without using good dialogue as examples. So I'm really going to be discussing these two things simultaneously. What's the purpose of good dialogue and what makes good dialogue good? The main point of dialogue is to move the story forward. Um, I'm going to talk a lot about um, other things good dialogue does, but if it's not moving the story forward, there's really no point in keeping it. For example, a good scene with good dialogue can help set a scene. But if all you want to do is set a scene, you can do that in exposition. It needs to be moving the story forward while it's doing all of these other things. But connected to that, if all you want to do is move the story forward, you can also narrate that if you had to. So dialogue is tricky, partly because it needs to always be doing more than one thing at once to be good. Um, I'm going to give you a list of things it should do besides move the story forward, and then I'll ask if you have other things to add. But basically, if your dialogue isn't moving the story forward and doing one or two or three of these other things, it's not working hard enough. Um, so here's my list. In addition to moving the story forward, good dialogue um, helps to create setting and inject humor. And um, I, I've read this before, but it's so powerful at setting the scene and injecting humor. I'm going to read it again. Um, it's from Beat the Reaper by Josh Basil. And um, it's right there if you, if you want to read this book. This is um, early on in page six. In the elevator up to medicine, there's a small blonde drug rep in a black party dress with a roller bag. She's got a flat chest and the arch of her back boosts her ass so she's shaped, she's shaped like a sexy slender kidney bean. She's 26 after a bit too much sun exposure and her nose is the kind that looks like a nose job but isn't. Freckles, I shit you not. Her teeth are the cleanest things in the hospital. Hi, she says, like she's from Oklahoma. Do I know you? Not yet, no, I say, thinking, because you're new on this job or you wouldn't have such shitty hours. Are you an orderly, she asks. I'm an intern in internal medicine. An intern is a first-year resident, one year out of medical school, so typically about six years younger than I am. I don't know what an orderly is. It sounds like someone who works in an insane asylum, if there are still insane asylums. Wow, the drug rep says, you're cute for a doctor. If by cute she means brutal and stupid looking, which in my experience most women do, she's right. My scrub shirt is so tight you can see the tattoos on my shoulders. Snake staff on the left, star of David on the right. You're from Oklahoma, I ask her. Well, yes, I am. You're 22? I wish. 24. 
You took a couple of years off. Yes, but oh my God, that is a boring story. It's okay so far. What's your name? Stacy, she says, stepping closer with her arms behind her back. I should say here that being chronically sleep deprived is so demonstrably similar to being drunk that hospitals often feel like giant ceaseless office Christmas parties. <laughs> Except that at a Christmas party, the schmuck standing next to you isn't about to fillet your pancreas with something called a hot knife. I should also maybe say that drug reps, of whom there is one for every seven physicians in the US, get paid to be flirtatious or else to actually fuck you, I've never been quite clear on that. What company do you work for, I ask. Martin Whiting Aldamed, she says. Got any Moxfane? Moxfane is the drug they give to bomber, pliets, bomber pli pilots who need to take off from Michigan, bomb Iraq, then fly back to Michigan without stopping. You can swallow it or use it to run the engine. Well, yes, I do, but what are you gonna give me in return? What do you want, I say. She's right up under me. What do I want? If I start thinking about that, I'll start crying. Don't tell me you want to see that. Beat's going to work. She gives me the play slap and leans over to unzip her bag. If she's wearing underwear, it's not of any technology I'm familiar with. <laughs> anyway, she says, it's just things like a career or not having three roommates or not having parents who think I should have stayed in Oklahoma. I don't know that you can help me with that. She stands up with a sample pack of Moxfane and a pair of Dermagels, the Martin Whiting Aldamed $18 rubber gloves. She says, in the meantime, I might settle for showing you our new gloves. I've tried them, I say. Have you ever tried kissing someone through them? No, neither have I, and I've kind of been dying to. She hip checks the elevator stop button. Oops, she says. She bites the cuff of one of the gloves to tear it open, and I laugh. You know that feeling where you're not sure whether you're being hustled or in the presence of an actual human being? I love that feeling. <laughs> That's Beat the Reaper by Josh Basil. Um, it's only page six. The story's just starting. He's moving the story forward. Um, he's injecting it with humor, and he's setting the scene. This is when we learn everything about him, and of, uh, starting to learn things about him, and of course, he's developing character. Um, good dialogue can create tension and conflict. Here's, your, here's a short scene from Toni Morrison's Beloved. You did it. I saw you, said Denver. What? I saw your face. You made her choke. I didn't do it. You told me you loved her. I fixed it, didn't I? Didn't I fix her neck? After. After you choked her neck. I kissed her neck. I didn't choke it. The circle of iron choked it. I saw you. Denver grabbed Beloved's arms. Look out, girl, said Beloved, and snatching her arm away, ran ahead as fast as she could along the stream that sang on the other side of the woods. Left alone, Denver wondered if, indeed, she had been wrong. Uh, that's in maybe a third along the book. A lot of tension and conflict created there in the context of the book. Um, dialogue can help build a world. You'll recognize this passage from the young adult dystopian novel, The Hunger Games. 
This occurs very early on in the novel, about page two or three. We could do it, you know, Gail says quietly. What, I ask? Leave the district, run off, live in the woods. You and I, we could make it, says Gail. I don't know how to respond. This idea is so preposterous. If we didn't have so many kids, he asks quickly. They're not our kids, of course, but they might as well be. Gail's two little brothers and my sister, Prim. And you may as well throw in our mothers, too, because how would they live without us? Who would fill those mouths that are always asking for more? With both of us hunting daily, there are still nights when game has to be swapped for lard or shoelaces or wool, still nights when we go to bed with our stomachs growling. I never want to have kids, I say. I might if I didn't live here, says Gail. But you do, I say, irritated. Forget it, he snaps back. And then a few sentences farther down, this passage ends with the lines, What do you want to do, I ask? We can hunt, fish, or gather. Let's fish at the lake. We can leave our poles and gather in the woods. Get something nice for tonight, he says. This is an exposition. Tonight, after the reaping, everyone is supposed to celebrate, and a lot of people do, out of relief that their children have been spared for another year. But at least two families will pull their shutters, lock their doors, and try to figure out how they will survive the painful weeks to come. So people who are writing sci-fi or um, uh, fantasy or historical novels, anything that needs uh, world building. I mean, all of us are building worlds, but anyone who's writing things where um, we can't assume what the world is like, dialogue carefully weaved with exposition can really help with that. Dialogue can speed up the pace. This is from Michael Cunningham's story, White Angel. Um, you can go to the cemetery here and see the White Angel monument in which a mother and son are talking about the boy's brother. Where's Carlton, she asks. Don't know, I tell her. Bobby, huh, what exactly is going on? Nothing, I say. My heart works itself up to a hummingbird's rate, more buzz than beat. I think something is. Will you answer a question? Okay. Is your brother taking drugs? I relax a bit. It's only drugs. I know why she's asking. Lately, police cars have been browsing our house like sharks. They pause, take note, glide on. Some neighborhood crackdown. Carlton is famous in these parts. No, I tell her. Well, if it's only, if it's only drugs, then what's the bad part? What's worse than that? This speeds up the pace, so we want to find out. Dialogue can create mood. The dialogue in Raymond Chandler is different than the dialogue in Jane Austen. It's part of the mood and atmosphere of the story or the poem. In Birdwatching at Night by Sherman Alexie, what kind of bird is that? An owl. What kind of bird was that? Another owl. Oh, that one was too quick and small to be an owl. What was it? A quick and small owl. And this is the, I think, the last excerpt I have. Um, dialogue can further the theme while it's moving the plot forward. This is from Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni. Um, the novel is Sister of My Heart. You might know her from The Mistress of Spices. But what Anne says next makes me feel as though someone's dropped me into a cold, dark well. I've also decided on an early marriage for her. As soon as she's finished at the convent, I'll start looking for a suitable boy. 
But she wouldn't even be 18, says mother, from somewhere above me, her voice echoing with shock. That's much too young. If she's old enough to fool around with men in movie houses, aunt says, she's old enough to care for her husband's family. It's hard to speak from under layers and layers of freezing water, but finally I manage. What about college? Isn't Suda going to college? What good is that going to do, says aunt? It'll just put more wayward ideas into her head. Instead, I'll have a f her finish school out of respect to your mother, who's put so much of her money into it. She inclines her head at my mother as though she's doing her a favor. The water smells dark and musty. It presses down until my chest is about to hurt open. How can you do this, I shout, only it comes out as a damp whisper. How can you ruin Suda's future? That's enough, Anju warns my mother, but it's the pity in her eyes that frightens me into silence. We'll discuss it later when our heads are working more clearly. Suda and Anju to your rooms. Now, Ramur, Ma, go with them. We climb the desolate staircase, emptied of words. My heart feels like all the light has leaked away from it. Suda's eyes are wide and feverish. A small new muscle jumps in her jaw. Why had I been so impetuous? Why hadn't I thought of consequences? Don't worry, this isn't over yet, I whisper. We'll fight it every way we can think of. Already I'm devising strategies, things I'm going to say to Mother, who I sense is on our side. And no matter what happens, it'll happen to us both together, I promise. I wait for Suda to agree, but instead she draws back a little and looks at me with a slight, ironic smile, as though she knows already what it'll take me years to figure out. Promises may be fulfilled, yes, but not always in the way we imagine. And of course, all of these are developing character. Dialogue shouldn't do one of these things. If it's not doing two or three of them, work on it until it's working harder or cut it. In my second book, I had a scene that I loved. Um, uh, my, one of my professors here at the workshop, James Salter, said um, the test of a good novel is how many pages you love end up deleted. <laughs> um, but it wasn't working hard enough. All it was doing was developing character. So I tried to make it do more than that, and I just couldn't, so I ended up deleting it. Um, so dialogue should always really be moving the, moving the story forward and doing more of these things. If I could have cut that scene and it didn't really affect the book, then it needed to be cut. Um, so before we move on to what dialogue shouldn't do, did I miss anything? Anyone, anyone, anything anyone can think of? Oh, no, um, so like um, when, oh, sorry, um, she asked, is self-talk also dialogue? So like in the last passage that I read, um, Anju says, um, oh, why had I been so impetuous? Why hadn't I thought of consequences in, in that dialogue? She's, she's asking herself that question. But it's really not dialogue. So when I'm talking about dialogue, I'm talking really about um, two people or more in a scene talking to each other. When she's talking to herself, um, she's just talking to herself within that scene. That's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess there could be. I guess there could be a scene 
where a character is talking to themselves and it's moving the story forward. Um, but in this case, it's just a moment in that scene. Yeah. Yes. It also can, can show the relationship between the two people. Definitely. Yeah, thank you. So develop character and develop relationships between two characters. Thank you. One thing I think about, too, is developing style mm -hmm. um, and also uh, kind of anchoring a story in time. I'm thinking specifically of, like, Amy Hempel. Her dialogue is so specific to her style yes this kind of like quirky fast-paced dialogue that misses mm -hmm. beats mm -hmm. um and then especially like in the cemetery where al jolson is buried like oh, yeah. it puts them in a certain time what they're talking about yeah. and i guess that's kind of developing setting yeah uh yeah so de um developing setting developing time and so that's, I guess I mentioned mood when I was saying Jane Austen and Chandler, but you're right, it's a little different than that, the style. Yeah. Um, Chandler's style, which we'll read from a little later, does more than just set a mood. Um, it's his own specific style. Yeah, good, thank you. Any, anyone else? Well, one thing um, dialogue should not do is convey information. Um, and I have this picture of um, rear window here because um, Hitchcock says that this is, Hitchcock says that dialogue should not convey information. And I always think of the first the opening scene in Rear Window, when I think of this quote by him, because it opens with um, all of these car races. Is that the right word? Car race? Car race. It doesn't sound right to me. It's not a car chase, it's a car race, like um, the Indy 500, that sort of thing. Um, close up and far away, and they're on the wall, and then there's a camera on a table, and then there's Jimmy Stewart with his leg in the cast. So when Grace Kelly comes in, she doesn't need to say, oh, hello, Jimmy Stewart, how are you doing after that terrible accident in which you're the photographer at the Indy 500 and a car ran over your leg? because it's done through these images that happen before anyone even speaks. And I always think, well, if Hitchcock can do that in a movie without a narrator, then what excuse do we have as writers who have a narrator and exposition and all of these tools at our fingertips um, to, to convey information without dialogue? So you never want to say in dialogue, oh, it's so nice to see you at our, our reunion. How long has it been? 20 years since we were in high school and you were dating so-and-so? And since then, I think you've been married once and divorced and you've had two children and blah, blah, blah. You don't, <laughs> you don't want to convey that in dialogue because we, we don't talk that way. Um, and we have a narrator in exposition to do that for us.
Um, anything else before we move on to practical elements? Yes. Sometimes uh, information exchange between characters, what you're saying is just don't use it as a crutch. I mean, it's yes, really what you're saying. Exactly. If it's realistic, um, the, the litmus test is, would the characters say this, or is the author saying it to the reader? So if the characters would really say this to one another, that's fine. But if the author is using the character to speak to the reader, then that's not okay. <laughs> I think there was a hand over here with someone else. Yes. Hi. Uh, actually, I have a similar question. Uh, sure. Um, because I, I'm, I'm wondering, like, um, can you also show like back background information um, through the dialogue? But you said it, it should be realistic if people really talk like that. Yeah. It's okay, but it's not okay to kind of simply convey the information. Right. I'm sure I can, um, I, I'm sure there are cases when it is appropriate. There are times when um, we are getting background information from someone like maybe on a first date or in a foster care situation or something like that. But um, if it's not realistic, then you can just do it in exposition. Yeah. Thank you. OK, a few practical elements um, regarding dialogue. Um, so we should use said. Um, he said, she said, they said, instead of exclaimed, uttered, voiced, exhorted, pronounced. Um, said is almost invisible. We don't really pay attention to it, so, um, whereas these other things really leap off the page. Um, no adverbs, because then they sound like Tom Swifties. I need a pencil sharpener, said Tom bluntly. It's not fair, said Tom darkly. So um, um, that's the first reason. The other reason is that um, if you say the line, that's fantastic news, he said happily. We're making one word, happily, do all of our work for us as writers. Um, what, what is the character feeling um, when he says that's fantastic news? Um, we need to do a lot more work than just put in one adverb. And the reason I have the Nobel Prize winner, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, sting sticking his tongue out at us is that um, he stopped using adverbs altogether. His second to the last book, he said, had three adverbs in it, and his last book, um, I think had no adverbs in it. He really tried to pare down and stop using adverbs because he felt they were lazy. Um, they were just trying to get a whole lot of feeling and emotion and thought into one word, and it was a lazy way to do it. Um, to get away from that, we can use gestures. So instead of writing, um, LD said, Raymond Carver writes, LD brought the glass to his lips. 
So it can be a resonant gesture. You can overdo that, and the reader can feel like, oh, the, the glass is to his lips. Now it's on the desk. Now it's here. Now it's there. So you need to do that sparingly, too. But if the gesture follows the quote so we know who's speaking, it can help set the scene if you sparingly. To get away from that, you can make each character sound different. For example, say I'm writing about a group of University of Iowa faculty members or students. Um, maybe all of the faculty members are all educated academics, but what if one is from Sri Lanka and another's from Athens, Georgia? Maybe one moonlights as a rapper poet. If I make decent character sketches, even write scenes in their point of view, I'll know their voices better. With that, not all characters are completely articulate all the time. Not saying what we're thinking or trying to say something but not being able to is a part of dialogue and character, too. Um, make sure your dialogue mirrors how people speak, and that means plenty of contractions. I'm amazed by my college students who speak in broken sentences, slang, interesting words and phrases, and then they go to write dialogue and they type, I will not do that. In real life, they would say, I won't do that, or I'm not going to do that, or they would just say, dude. Um, but, you know, they go to type it and they say, I will not do that. So write how people speak, but note that an excerpt of dialogue is not a uh, perfect recording of a conversation, it has focus and often it's an escalation. Um, I have a quote on my bulletin board that says, if characters are saying exactly what they're thinking, you're not writing drama. So there's a tension between what we think and what we say. Um, before I get to my last piece of practical advice, I just want to leave with one Raymond Chandler quote that sort of shows all of the above. This is from the very first scene of The Long Goodbye from 1953. It takes place at a valet parking in front of a hotel, and I think in a few lines it does all of this. Um, the girl said with a nice burst of charm, I have a wonderful idea, darling. Why don't we just take a cab to your place and get your convertible out? It's such a wonderful night for a run up the coast to Montecito. I know some people there who are throwing a dance around the pool. The white-haired lad said politely, awfully sorry, but I don't have it anymore. I was compelled to sell it. From his voice and articulation, you wouldn't have known he had had anything stronger than orange juice to drink. Sold it, darling. How do you mean? She slid away from him along the seat, but her voice slid away a lot farther than that. I mean, I had to, he said, for eating money. Oh, I see. A slice of spumoni wouldn't have melted on her now. The attendant had the white-haired boy right where he could reach him in a low-income bracket. Look, Buster, I got to put the car away. See you some more some other time. Maybe. Um, Chandler doesn't write, she said, icily. He says, Spumoni wouldn't have melted on her. And he doesn't say, she said. He says, she grew, um, he doesn't say, she said, and then she grew cold in distance. He writes, she slid away on the seat and her voice slid away a lot farther. He doesn't need a, a dialogue tag when the attendant speaks because his voice is so different, we know it's him. Um, the last line of this scene is, um, but he, meaning the attendant, was partly right, of course. Terry Lennox made me plenty of trouble, but after all, that's my line of work. 
So all of this dialogue and what follows, which I didn't have a chance to read the whole scene, introduces the inciting incident and the central conflict of the whole novel. Um, the last bit of practical advice I'll leave you with is that Frank Conroy, who was the director of the Iowa Writers Workshop when I attended it here, said, you get three exclamation points in your life, so use them sparingly. <laughs> um, a any other practical tips? Yeah, Zachary? Yeah. So on the, the, the previous slide where you had the purposes, um, I, I was thinking that adding authenticity would be a purpose of dialogue. Um, yeah. But no matter how many Sri Lankan co-workers I might ever have in my life, just to use your example, yeah. I, I could never, I don't think, authentically or believably or in a non-awful way um, convey um, that, that, that speech. So, so for dialogue versus dialect, um, how, oh. how, how much do you have to trust that you're getting it right oh. before you dive into dialect? Yeah. Thank you. I've heard, um, to, I guess this is where the illegal tape recorder comes in. Um, but I, I, I think that's a great question. And I, I think there is writing about what you know, but also doing research. Um, and I'm just assuming that you have these kinds of um, coworkers around you. But also I think this is where um, you need to use dialect very carefully and sparingly and respectfully. And then also I think this is where you have readers who you know and trust help you and read it for you and say, is this, is this right? Is this authentic? Is this respectful? Um, and I'm assuming that you know um, there are some people um, that you're sort of somewhat hearing in your life and it's not just completely made up but some things are completely made up you know how does an alien talk um you're just making that up or 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 whatever but i feel like in edith warden's book or in philip marlowe's book where there's this huge variety of characters it's about listening carefully and in 2019, it's about like asking our friends and readers to help us. I think that's a really good question. Yes. On the part about writing how people actually speak and the example you gave of your college students, yeah. I'm just thinking about how people actually do speak. Even someone like President Obama has this halting speech pattern and he says, um, a lot. And normal people who are not President Obama virtually never speak in full sentences. So is there a limit to writing how people speak? Are there times when you write in full sentences and <laughs> what they're trying to say? I'm, I'm just trying to imagine a book that was literally only written how people speak and it seems like it might be hard to read. Yeah, exactly. That's why I said like it's not a recording. It has focus. It's an escalation. So I think that's a really good point. There's a a happy medium between exactly how people speak and making it interesting to the reader. Um, it's not a recording, but it needs to be somewhat natural. And I do think that sometimes that um, the double hyphen, which makes a dash for interruptions, 
or the ellipses for trailing off can be useful, especially in playwriting, so that the, you're telling the actors when to interrupt each other and when to trail off um, can be useful, but I think in a novel or short story that would get tedious after a while if you're just reading a lot of punctuation and a lot of ums, it would get tedious, yeah. Yeah. Let's have two more questions, and then we'll go on to our exercise. Get back here. Hi. I, I find, for me, that the challenge of writing dialogue isn't so much coming up with the words that people say, but having to do with the pacing of it, because we read faster than people talk, and we can't get in you know, the kinds of inflections when someone is pausing for dramatic effect, and you can't say, you know, the words that someone says, you know, she paused for dramatic effect, you know. So is that a different class or is, or, <laughs> or, or how does that fit into what we're talking about here? I think you just need to trust the reader because I know that like as, as a playwright, I want to, my impulse is to give a stage direction that says, this is exactly how I hear it in my head and I want you to say it exactly this way. And of course I don't do that, and the actor often reads it better than I've imagined it in my head. So you, I just have to trust that the reader's going to read it well. But, but a play, is it, that's really different in my mind, because okay. you know, they can have their vocal inflections, they've got their facial expressions, they've got so much more rich information that is not words that yeah. we don't have, that we can't have access to on the page. We have to either describe it, I mean, using adverbs, which you said maybe we shouldn't use so much, but um, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I just get stuck. Um, well, in the, in the passage I read by Raymond Ch Chandler, um, I don't think there are a lot of different ways to read that, the girl's speech. You know, um, I feel like if you write dialogue in that character's voice, it's really hard for the reader to, miss, to, to get it wrong, to misread it. And you read a lot, we all read a lot. I don't think there are a lot of times where the author is really telling us how to read and saying they paused. I mean, maybe there's a gesture there. She slid on the seat, and that's when we pause. Um, but I, I, think we're, I think we're reading well enough, you know, so that I think as, as readers, we're reading well. So as writers, we need to trust that our fellow readers are going to read well. I, I'm sure that's not satisfying, but. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about adverbs and pronouns for a second. Um, regarding adverbs, uh, I thought it was kind of ironic that you say to use adverbs sparingly after said or before said or after said, excuse me, and because in my experience working with students, especially ESL students, the best way for them to learn adverbs is to put it next to said, as in, you know, Tom said happily. So how did he say it? He said it happily. Yeah. And so, you know, is that, you know, just kind of a rule? Um, uh, or is it just to use sparingly? Or, you know, that's my question about that. And then the other thing is, before I get the mic taken away, is pronouns. Um, when do we use them and how often, you know, in between characters? Like, is it more appropriate for two characters who are strangers? Or is it more appropriate for characters who know each other? Thank you. 
Um, in terms of the first one, like I, I'm not an ESL teacher, so you're the expert on that. You should teach that however you want. I'm just talking about for like writers who want to get their stories and novels published and their plays produced. I, I think it makes sense to teach that way um, for English language learners, you know. Um, so um, I don't think it's a rule. I think it's just um, a, a guideline for, for writers. And about the pronouns, do you mean like how characters would say them in a sentence? Oh, I see. So I think once you've established it once, Bob said, you can then say he said. Um, and I think I didn't mention this in what not to do, but I think we rarely say each other's names when we're talking to people. So I don't know if that's your question, but I'm glad you brought it up because I read that a lot in in um, non-published writing, like, Bob, let's go to the store. Okay, Kelly, when do you want to go? I don't know, Bob, Wh when do you want to go? How about in an hour, Kelly? And it's just not how we talk to people. Um, I know you still have questions, and I'm totally happy to stay after as long as you want, but I want us to do an exercise um, and maybe share. And the exercise is twofold. It's, is this a battlefield or a beauty parlor? And what's your secret? And the idea is we're setting a scene um, so that I can tell, and your reader can tell, is it a battlefield or a beauty parlor? Because sometimes I can't tell where it's set. In Beat the Reaper, it was clearly in an elevator of a hospital. So set the scene, sorry. Clearly, and um, can one character have a secret from the other? And maybe not the first secret you can think of, which maybe other people have thought of, but, but it's okay if, if it is, like. Um, um, but, uh, so one character has a secret from the other, and can you set the scene? And we only have a few minutes to write. And if you share, I have a truffle or a licorice to give you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> it's scary to share. Um, so I think, let's see, there's no clock. Oh, um, so maybe we have only five minutes to write and five minutes to share. Oh, it's your choice. It can be any setting you like. Um, I just call it, is it a battlefield or a beauty parlor? That's just my catchy title. Well, I think it's catchy because um, sometimes I can't tell where things are set. Um, is it 18th century France? Is it um, um, 2090 uh, Iowa City in a coffee shop? So just place it in space and time and have one character have a secret from each other or maybe both of them have a secret from each other. Thank you everyone. Um,
The readers can come up for their treats and everyone else can come up to tell me their comments or questions or share your exercises with me. Thanks so much and I'll see you tonight at the dinner. Thank you.